From the Los Angeles Times, this is Coronavirus in California, stories from the front lines. I'm Gustavo Arellano. It's Wednesday, May 6th. Today, pandemics leave a trace on culture, from architecture and public space to poetry and painting. My colleague, LA Times culture writer Carolina Miranda, has been documenting how artists are reacting to this moment and unearthing the remnants of past pandemics in our cultural life. From public spaces and Aztecs, to Colombian songs and photo diaries, to drive through restaurants and dairy stores. Carolina says that now that we're living through COVID-19, we're better positioned to understand our history. Blue Shield of California would like to take this moment to thank the mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, daughters, sons, friends, and heroes on the front line. This fight is tough, but so are you. And we're grateful for your courage and your dedication to keeping us all safe and healthy. Thank you. So, Carolina, I mean, you've done so many awesome stories about the intersection of arts and coronavirus. I want to go back in time to the Florentine Codex. Uh, that was a great story talking about what pandemics can do in terms of inspiring people to reflect and also report on their own culture. Exactly. That was such a critical piece of encyclopedic knowledge that was created at this time by indigenous scholars in Mexico at a time in which Mexico in the early colonial era was being ravaged by one of many plagues that it went through during the 16th century. Uh, Often smallpox would sweep through and this would be followed by other diseases that would then catch uh, uh, an already kind of debilitated population. And the story of the Florentine Codex is the story of this group of, of indigenous scholars that had basically sealed themselves into a convent and had been working on what was an encyclopedia of indigenous life. And it was it was done at a really key moment in history because it was at a moment when the elders who still had an experience of what Mexico was like before the arrival of the Spanish, were still alive. So these scholars could go out and interview them, uh, get the history of, of medicine, of culture, of language, of architecture, all of these like really important things about the culture. And it just so happened that the last few chapters of that book were written under quarantine conditions. So yes, a really incredible, incredible document. And also this incredible moment of reflection at this time when they're essentially prisoners. And what's interesting about it, it's not like pandemics are new to human history, but you see all these different manifestations of art and not just art, but architecture, uh, performances, all of that. Exactly. And I think it's it's been uh, interesting to think about how previous pandemics have shaped culture and the way we view it. It's been interesting. One of the things that has come up is that Barring a few paintings, the 1918 influenza pandemic didn't leave a huge cultural imprint. You know, we probably talk about the influence of World War I on art and, and performance more than we do that pandemic. And so historians have started to dig in of like, okay, is, were artists contending with this issue in maybe more coded ways that we don't know about? Like now that we're living it, Perhaps we are in a much greater position to understand the work that was made in the wake uh, of these terrible tragedies. People say that, but then I think when they talk about the lost generation, obviously it was about World War One and all the effect that that had. But then, hey, at, you know, to sort of put a pin at the end of World War One, you also have this horrible pandemic, uh, the influenza. 
It was a double whammy. And I think, you know, historically we give the attention to World War One because World War One is a series of historical events, you know, and there are battles and there are front lines, whereas a pandemic is a much more like invisible and difficult to gauge thing. A lot of people believe that the the influenza epidemic of 1918 came as a result of uh, World War One. that a lot of its genesis had to do with, you know, these great movements of soldiers, of hygiene in war conditions not being what it usually is. But it was it, it was this terrible end cap to that terrible war in the sense that, you know, millions had lost their lives and then millions more would through this pandemic. We're talking about the past. Flash forward all the way to recently, where one of your most recent stories was, you know, typical Carolina, a rumination on what the drive-through now means at this point of coronavirus. The drive-through so, you know, so hated by so many, but yet su- such an essential part of Southern California life and in many ways now a life-saving part of Cal- Southern California life. Exactly. I mean, this was socially distant architecture before we knew what socially distant was. You know, it's like <laughs> you stay in your car, you talk at somebody through a speaker, somebody hands you something in a bag and then you drive off. And it's like every transaction nowadays is exactly like that. But this was something that has been built into, you know, as you know, into Southern California architecture for a long time. You know, the whole way I got started on the story was one of my favorite burrito stands in L.A. is this place called Chanos on uh, Lincoln Park. And one day we happened to be driving by and we saw that Chanos was open and we were like, oh, my God, Chanos is open. Like, let's swing through and do the drive through. And while we were sitting in the drive through, it just felt so normal. Like we're in the drive through at Chano's getting some machaca con huevo. And I realized then that it was really the parts of Los Angeles that have remained really functional uh, during this whole period. I mean, Southern California in general are the drive throughs. You know, there's still a line at In-N-Out. <laughs> you still got to wait for a double-double. And so it was a way to kind of like look back at the drive through at how this piece of architecture that started as a novelty has, you know, over the last 20 to 30 years become increasingly maligned as, you know, bad urbanism, as a symbol of obesity, of our sedentary lifestyle. It turns out that in this moment, it's actually become quite handy. Do you buy that argument that some people are now saying that because Southern California is so spread out architecturally, you know, uh, with housing and all that, that that's why we didn't get struck as hard as, say, a more dense place like Seattle or uh, New York? You know, I think the results on that are not in yet. I think that's probably a kind of reductive point of view to take at a, at a point in which we still don't 100 percent know how this virus works. Certainly the anti-density urbanists have come out on this saying, see, you know, suburban sprawl is great. It prevents pandemics. <laughs> Just like I don't, I don't buy that for a second. The fact is that, you know, it's still too early to tell. We still have a lot of studying to do. Yeah, it was. I just wanted to get your thoughts on it because it's just to me, it's such a bizarre thing, especially coming. We're not going to name names here, but from the usual suspects saying, you see, this is the glories of suburbia. You're more protected from the ravages of urbanism. And urbanism, of course, means disease. Urbanism means pandemics. And if you're living out like all the way out in the suburbs, you're going to be fine from this. Yeah, I mean, that's not true, mainly because we know that coronavirus has hit some of those remote suburbs. We know that Corona, you know, Brittany Mejia, our colleague, had this incredible report about how it's affecting farm workers in the eastern Coachella Valley. And I think it's also worth remembering, too, that actually 
the, Los Angeles has some of the densest zip codes in the United States in areas like West Lake MacArthur Park and Koreatown. Again, you know, it's like, I think anybody who's rushing to any kind of conclusion at this point, I don't think I can buy it. <laughs> This LA Times podcast is presented by Blue Shield of California. The fight is tough, but so are you. Thank you, Frontline. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. So as a reporter who covers culture, Carolina, and like, you know, all, all, all of culture, music, art and all that, well, what are the stories you're looking at right now when it comes to coronavirus? I think it's trying to look at a combination of things. It's obviously covering the news of coronavirus, I, you know, and how it is affecting the art world in a very immediate way. So layoffs at museums, galleries that all of a sudden are kind of trapped in amber and can't show their shows and are having a tough time making sales and maybe facing closure. But I'm also trying to look at the larger cultural stories of what different pieces of culture might mean at this moment in time. So I think the Florentine Codex was, you know, an opportunity to do that, an opportunity to look at the past and think about what does a past pandemic have to teach us and also a a past pandemic that is very connected to the history of, you know, certainly Southern California, which used to be Mexico, like all of California and the Americas. And I, I feel like when we talk about pandemics, often the first thing that comes up is the Black Death in Europe. But the fact is that there were these very important culture shaping, politics shaping, economics shaping pandemics here in the Americas too. So I think looking at the the cultural aspect of it, what can we learn? And then doing pieces like this drive-through piece, which I think is an opportunity to kind of take the drive-through into consideration. You know, in recent years, a number of cities have legislated against drive-throughs or they've issued very strict rules about how a drive-through can be designed. For example, like the city of Long Beach had a moratorium on new drive-through construction last year. And now they have a set of very distinct rules about where drive-throughs can be built and how they can be built in order to to A, use space wisely, but B, also create safe cities. Drive-throughs can often be very un- unsafe for pedestrians and cyclists. And so an opportunity to take this piece of urban infrastructure that we kind of take for granted, but that now has become really key and reflect on it. And what does it mean? And what does it mean at this time? And what has it meant? And how might it continue to evolve? What are you seeing creatives in Southern California do to respond to coronavirus? Like one story that I loved also was about Rafael Cardenas, some guy who wanted to shoot a photo of L.A. every single day, started started like that at the beginning of the year. And now he's shooting L.A. under coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, the, it's it's incredible this whole moment, because what happens is just because galleries are closed and museums are closed doesn't mean artists stop making art. And Rafael is a photographer that I have uh, profiled in the past. This year, in order to celebrate his kind of his 10th anniversary as a professional photographer, he started a photo a day project where he would go out every day. He would shoot largely street photography in Los Angeles, a lot of it on the east side. 
And he treated it as a kind of looking exercise, a way of staying limber as a photographer. Like if you're forced to go out and get a photo every day, you constantly have to be looking and exercising that muscle, that artistic muscle. That photo a day project has ended up in, in a really incredible way recording the start of the pandemic in Los Angeles. So this project that was featured portraits of people and scenes of street life and his family and his friends and backyard parties and all of these different things, all of a sudden begins to capture people wearing masks, locked off uh, picnic areas, uh, shuttered businesses. And so as an artist, he has in this really curious way just captured the moment that we're in without even intending to. It's almost like Samuel Pepys's diary of London during the Black Death when it, uh, in the 1600s. Exactly, exactly. That this was a diary that started off as a diary and then it ended up being a chronicle of something else. And, you know, and as that series continue, it, it will be really interesting to see how Rafael's photos evolve because as the city begins to reopen, as as people begin to come back into public space, he's going to be capturing that, you know, one photo at a time. What are some other artists that you think are doing innovative stuff right now? For a lot of artists, this has been an opportunity to kind of do what artists do, which is a little bit of retreat and find solitude in the studio and, you know, use this time in which they, you know, people literally can't go anywhere to produce work. So I did a portfolio of artists who are continuing to work during this time for example, the painter Monica Maioli, she does these very labor-intensive uh, paintings. She's devoting herself to just spend a little bit more time in the studio and really think about what she's doing and try new things. The painter Sandy Rodriguez, who is really influenced by the Florentine Codex and, and uses indigenous materials and uses a lot of the materials that those painters who created the Codex uh, used, she is using it also as an opportunity to experiment with new materials, create new works, and think about what it means to create work under these conditions. Like previously, she could have only imagined what it would have been like to work in a pandemic. Now she's actually doing it. Thank you so much for this interview, Carolina. Oh my God, thank you for having me on. And I'll see you at the drive-thru. <laughs> That's it for today's episode of Coronavirus in California, Stories from the Front Lines. Thanks for listening. Do you have a story you want to share with us? Call our hotline at 213-986-5652 and leave us a message. That's 213-986-5652 or email me, gustavo.ariano at latimes.com. This podcast was hosted by me, yeah, the Gustavo Ariano. Our producers are Paige Heimsen and Stan Lee. Our senior producer is Rena Palta, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Kevlin, and our original music was composed by Andrew Ebit. If you like our podcast, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special gracias to Julia Turner, Shelby Grad, Hector Becerra, and Clint Schaff. For the latest coronavirus stories by my LA Times colleagues, including an up-to-the-minute tracker of cases across California, don't forget to visit our website. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the LA Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Stay safe and see you tomorrow. <laughs>